I'm Jeremy Parker, interactive editor with The Post and Courier, here each week to discuss the forces shaping the Palmetto State and provide the context that gives it meaning. This is Understand South Carolina. I'm here with Brooks Brunson. Hey! And Kelly Poe. Hi! From The Post and Courier's web team, as well as reporter Abigail Darlington, to talk about a struggle we've all dealt with and that only seems to be getting harder. Finding housing in Charleston we can afford. Welcome to the show, Abigail. Hello, thank you. Abigail's been covering the housing market in the region for years. An investigation published about a year ago found that Charleston's housing crisis is on pace to rival San Francisco's. In many parts of Charleston County, it takes at least a six-figure income to buy a typical single-family home, and renting is even harder. So, Abigail, um, in this 2017 story you wrote, you reported that the average rent in Charleston Metro topped $1,600 at that time, which is higher than the national average and all other major cities in South Carolina. Is that still true today? In a sense, it's gotten worse because what we're seeing now is that... um, So when we originally looked at the data, we used the metro area, which really only included the inner part of Charleston and North Charleston. Mm -hmm. So I recently reviewed the data for an update on that story. So actually ended up breaking down by county and gotten a little bit more expensive here. In Charleston County, you're seeing rents at an average of $1,800. Wow. And that is very high. It's higher than what we last reported. HUD basically says that you should only spend 30% of your income every month on housing costs. So if you're earning, let's say, $3,600 a month, that means you should be renting something for $1,200 a month. So I just plugged that into Zillow earlier today. And what I was finding is that, you know, anything in Charleston County that was less than $1,200, I got 34 results. 34 out of 34 available rentals that are under 1200 correct? Yeah. Out of what would be, you know, total rentals altogether? You know, 1600 We saw, I think it was about 250 Wow. rentals. So if you're on a budget... You can hunt for a long time to find something, but you're probably not going to find anything in places like Mount Pleasant, which only had four results for $1,200 a month. Um, James Island only had two results for that amount of money. So it's it's hard out there right now. It's not that – so when we think about how much it costs on average for renters, it's not that if you don't have $1,800, you know, go elsewhere – it means that the burden on these renters is that they're going to have to start looking well in advance and possibly have to live very far away from where they'd want to live. Um, so say you've been living downtown for four years, uh, your rent is going up, something that you can't afford anymore, so you're trying to stay within the price range that you can afford, and that's around $1,200. Guess what? Your lease is ending and you have to find somewhere to live. Often what people do is they end up moving somewhere they can't really truly afford, which Harvard, they have a joint center for housing studies, and they found that in the Charleston area, about 48% of renters are living in housing they can't afford. You know, this means that you have to be looking well ahead of your lease ending or whatever. I mean, have you done any reporting on just how competitive it is? I mean, I know from my experience, I remember going to this open house once for an apartment downtown, and it was like 50 people there. I actually was able to get the apartment, but I had to pull the landlord aside in the middle of the open house, and I volunteered to pay another $200 a month. 
And that was how I secured it. So I guess my question is, you know, is that normal? I mean, that was kind of a bizarre situation, I thought. But now that you're telling me these numbers. I think anecdotally, you know, just from having friends in this area that do have to go out and move around uh, to to try and find somewhere that they can afford to live. Uh, I do know that it's competitive, uh, but it's also competitive if you're a first-time homebuyer. Not even necessarily first time, but if you're on a restricted income, you can only buy something that's, say, less than $300,000. Not too long ago, I was speaking with somebody who had basically seen this house in a desirable area, knew that it was going to be competitive, so immediately pulled the trigger. Turns out it's in a you know a flood zone, and he felt like he didn't even have the time to really do that due diligence. Right, because it's such a rush. Because you're just trying to get in. So that's a whole different, and we could get into that later, but it's, it's really competitive. Mm-hmm. And it's when you think about workers who are working in hospitality or they're working in the medical district, you know, they're working full time. Uh, these are really the people that end up being so burdened. You know, it's, it's young people and it's people who are trying to just work and live and, and you know, gain assets in this, you know, very difficult climate. But it's people that literally can't work in the community or can't live in the communities that they serve, you know, teachers, police officers, firefighters. I mean, you have city of Charleston firefighters and police officers that are living in Somerville um, because the rent prices are 20 percent cheaper in Berkeley and Dorchester counties. I can't tell you how many Facebook comments I go through whenever we write about this and people say, keep Ohio out. People from the Midwest, I mean, particularly Ohio, people hate Ohio. But my question for you, Abigail, is who do you think that people, residents here really blame for this issue? And who should they be blaming? Is it Ohio's fault? Oh, I've actually written about this. Um, The vast majority of people who move here move here from South Carolina. And the vast majority of people who don't move here from South Carolina, which is the minority, move here from Charlotte or Atlanta. It's, it is, the, yeah. the influx very much comes from the South and specifically South Carolina. Yeah, it, it, makes, it is not Ohio. It makes a ton of sense, right? It's just like people are moving from our neighboring states. It's, it's such a weird meme that everyone is coming from Ohio, but it's, as Kelly says, not true. The top 10 places that people mm-hmm. move here from, I believe, are all in the South, and I think eight out of 10 are in South Carolina. But I think the growth anxiety that that you're kind of referring to, I do think people blame the people from off. I'm using air quotes because I hear that a lot. And it's because people are moving here at a very fast rate, and that's creating demand for housing. But the problem is we're not supplying that demand. What are you going to do? We can't, you know, are we going to build a wall around Charleston? No. You're not going to, at any point, stop the influx of people wanting to move here. There's nothing you can do to make that stop. And actually, you don't want it to stop because we need people to be working in our schools and at our manufacturing plants. I mean, employment is a huge driver of the economy, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we need, um, for this thriving economy, we really need people. The problem is we have the jobs, so people are moving here. And the problem is, and this is the problem in any community that's struggling with housing, you're not supplying the housing that you need to support all the jobs that you have. And I, I see I, all these luxury apartments being built. Like, look, if we were to walk outside our building right now, it is all true. luxury new apartments getting built. So, you feel like they're yeah, coming up and, everywhere. And so one of the things that I found in this updated 
report was think about Charleston as just like a landscape with nothing on it, right? So it was always going to have a very small building envelope. Like we can't grow like Atlanta in this radial fashion. We only have one direction, which is away from the water, right? But it's also coastal, so it's swampy. You have a lot of land that you really can't and shouldn't build on. So it's divided by rivers and streams and marshes. So the amount of land that we had just from the beginning to build on was pretty limited, right? In the past few decades, the way that we grew is Charleston was always this bedroom community, right? So we didn't really build these high-rise, you know, apartments or anything like that. It was large subdivisions. Everybody had their own lot that was about an acre. And that was the way that we grew. And it was affordable to live in those homes. Well, now that all of that space has been taken up by that relatively low density type of subdivision, the, the land is scarce, essentially. And so we're so building the, up Well, the, the land is scarce, number one, so that's yeah. one thing. But because it's scarce, it's very, very expensive. So if you're going to offset the cost of that, what are you going to do? You're probably going to build to a higher price point. So, so we are seeing people trying to meet the demand, but they're meeting the demand in a way that's going to offset all the costs that come with just construction. So I think really quickly, I want to say, I think one of the points that you just made is like super important. And it's something that I think people don't realize. And I've had to, I see a lot of feedback online about like anti-growth feedback, like, oh, Charleston is growing too fast. And, you know, I think it's really important, though, that people appreciate it is one thing to live in a growing community. It is You don't want to live in a community that's not growing. That's what like Flint, Michigan looks like. That's what like Detroit looks like. I mean, you don't want to live in a community where people aren't moving into, right? I think there there are three huge issues that everybody in Charleston talks about all the time. There's traffic, there's growth, and there's affordability. And I think that it seems like these things are not related at first, but I think actually you can draw a line connecting all three of them. Very And that I think counterintuitively, a lot of our policies like our policy preferences are aimed at like individually fixing these problems. The ways that we try to fix traffic, for example, offset and create problems in affordability and growth. And the way that we try to fix growth offset and create problems in traffic and affordability. And the way that we try to fix affordability offset and create problems for traffic and growth. To explain that a little bit, like the way that I think they're all connected is that like what you're talking about. One of the solutions is making sure that we're not only building more affordable price points, but also preserving them where they are close to job centers, because you want to have this workforce housing, affordable housing, whatever you want to call it, $900 to $1,200 rental price points. You want to have uh, a pretty strong stock of that type of housing near your job center. So you want to have it on the peninsula, the upper peninsula in North Charleston, which actually North Charleston has a pretty good affordable housing stock. When you are building new, you want to make sure that you're also lining that up with policies to be near transit. And I think City of Charleston is actually doing a pretty good job of that. And there are some long range plans on the at the Council of Governments um, to make sure that when bus rapid transit is built, that that is a major component of the land use policies. So local governments are going to have to make sure that they get comparable zoning, you know, and I know everybody's eyes are going to start glazing over, but mm. basically getting an agreement from, say, uh, North Charleston, Somerville, 
uh, the city of Charleston, you know, possibly James Island, et cetera, Charleston County, making sure that they all adopt the same zoning in the areas where bus rapid transit will go through eventually so that it encourages affordable housing development. Well, I want to get into zoning in a second, but I, I, want, I just thought of like a concrete example of what I'm talking about. So, Brooks, you, you mentioned anybody that comes downtown will see all these new developments going on. It looks like tons and tons of new units are being built. But the thing is, the, the box that's being built that has all the units in it, a huge portion of that is actually taken up by parking because we have parking requirements. And that's an example of something where... The thinking is that that's going to improve parking availability for other people, right? Because these people will move into a place and they'll have a place to park their car. But all that does is increase the density of cars downtown. It just encourages people to move downtown and bring their car with them. And there's a height limit downtown. So if you can only build so so tall and some percentage of all of the space available to you has to be taken up by parking because you have to give everybody like two parking spaces. That means you can't build as many units and those units are going to be more expensive. And that that's like an example of the kind of thing that makes it economically such that yeah. it only makes sense to build luxury units. Yeah, minimum parking requirements are a huge driver of, of prices mm-hmm. for sure because it's this everything comes down to the space and the land cost. You know, space is at a premium. So... The more spaces that you have to dedicate to housing your car, uh, the less space that you will have to house human beings. Mm-hmm. But my thought was between what Abigail and Emery just said. So Abigail was making this point that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, you were saying that the fact that there aren't enough places to live near job centers makes traffic worse, oh, correct? Yeah. yeah. So... I think that's really fascinating that, you know, part of our, and I had never thought of it this way, that part of the reason, like, traffic is so bad and rush hour is so bad is because people can't afford to live oh, yeah, near downtown. Yeah, because everybody has to drive from Somerville to so the, where the jobs everybody. are. Well, I mean, yeah. My research showed that mm-hmm. um, only 25% of people who work in Charleston County actually live in Charleston yeah. County. 25%. So 41% of the workforce in Charleston County is commuting in every single day. And we don't have the road network to support that much traffic every day. I mean, you look at Ashley River Road, you look at uh, I-26 a lot of the time. I mean, if there's any sort of wreck, uh, you look at 526. I mean, all of these arteries are really congested, especially with traffic coming from the North area. And that's why. Emery says there also is an issue. I mean, he was particularly speaking about luxury apartments, but... If we create parking near these apartments, it's encouraging more cars downtown. It's like both way you lose, even if you <laughs> create parking, which takes up space downtown and would have to be the cost of a luxury apartment. If you build far away from job centers, then you're also creating more traffic. So I guess it's just kind of interesting that it's another one of those like conundrums of like there's not really a solution. Well, it's, it's actually something that's um, a pretty hot topic in urban planning is should you start in your urban centers, should you start limiting your parking requirements because the land is at a premium? And will that in turn encourage people to walk more, bike more, which is healthier? You'll have a healthier community, you know, and that's kind of it's a little idealist. I mean, I don't think Charleston is there yet, but 
should we be increasing the amount of shuttle systems and park and rides right. so that, you know, because Charleston streets are downtown Charleston streets are already narrow. They're historic. They a lot of times are. Well, it's hard to bike ever, here. Me, have you ever noticed this weird thing on Craigslist? Sometimes you like are looking for apartments and people will put parking spaces in in the park in, in like rental listings. And it's like crazy. Or, or sometimes I'm looking for like you go on Zillow or something and look for like houses for sale downtown and you'll see something that's like 100,000 and you're like, oh, what could that possibly be? And then you look at, and it's actually a parking space. Oh my gosh, They're, yes. they're parking spaces for sale. Caitlin Bird wrote about, I think it was, it was a couple years ago, but she wrote about a parking spot downtown that was for sale for $79,000. Right, right, right. So, that, I mean, that's what I'm saying is like if, if, we're, if we're literally selling parking spaces for the cost of how, of like a f- cheap houses... Are we building a city for people or are we building a city for cars? Right. And so I think that there are uh, solutions on the table right now to try and address that. So one of the things that was making it very difficult to build affordable housing downtown was the state housing finance. um, I'm, I'm blanking on their full name, but it's basically the finance arm that helps distribute the low income housing tax credits. Um, So developers that wanted to build affordable housing were going to the state and saying, hey, we have this great project. Here's how many units. Here's how many people we can house. It's going to be downtown near the aquarium, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But they would get through the scoring process, which everybody has to go through. And it was a standardized scoring process. It wasn't taking into account that this is the peninsula where land is so expensive and it's so, you know, rare to find Mm -hmm. enough space. And they were using the standard like parking minimum parking requirement. And it's not that people who live in, you know, affordable housing shouldn't drive and don't have a cars. It's not that. It's just that that was literally preventing affordable housing from getting built on the peninsula for like 20 years because people, literally developers could not figure out the space configuration to make those parking requirements work and still house the amount of people that they wanted to. So even if we get this funding, though, even if we have the money to build the affordable housing, as you mentioned, Charleston has like really unique land requirements. We can't grow out because we'll hit water. Um, we can't grow up because Charleston has these rules about um, height restrictions to try to keep the historic charm. Where where does it even go? There are a lot of places that are primed for denser development. You know, the peninsula often talks about Laurel Island, which is sort of off of Uh, the Upper Peninsula. You know, they talk about, you know, the mid to Upper Peninsula where they have the workforce housing zoning where you can get density bonuses as long as you uh, include affordable housing in your price or in your floor plans. So there are places where the city of Charleston says that it can do denser housing. There are opportunities in the suburbs for infill. As limited as the land is right now, there are still places to make these things happen. And we're not always talking about high-rise apartments. I mean, we really should be seeing more starter homes, more duplexes, triplexes, uh, accessory dwelling units. A lot of places that you'll see have started to build more and more townhomes. But because we built many of those suburban communities like James Island as these kind of bedroom communities, I mean, when you try to come in with these dense developments, it it feels to that community like this assault on their quality of life, on their way of life, on their identity as a community. And that and those are real concerns that uh, a city is very hard pressed to try and address, you know, how to get everybody on board with something and trying to communicate that this is what we need. And, you know, it's not just capitalistic. And 
Right now, it's especially difficult because of all the flooding concerns. I mean, people have real concerns about development causing more flooding. Can it be solved individually? Does this have to be solved regionally? Does Mount Pleasant have to work with James Island? So there's been an idea to do that. That's what the Charleston Area Justice Ministry was trying to push for. They really wanted a regional housing trust fund, which can work. It, it is working in uh, the Seattle area. But I don't know that that's the best solution for, for these particular municipalities because, you know, I, just recently, uh, the city planner, Charleston city planner told me that they need affordable housing where the affordability issue is the most acute, which is on the peninsula. So it doesn't help them to pay into a regional fund to then build the housing where the land is the cheapest, which probably isn't going to be the peninsula. So in Mount Pleasant pretty much feels the same way that that might not be the best approach from this region, this regional standpoint. There's a lot of arguments for a regional, you know, just get the units built and figure it out, you know, and everybody's going to have to be on board and pay in to make that happen. um, Because it's essentially just a shortage of housing. So let's just get it built. I don't know if that regional housing trust fund is going to get off the ground. It would take a lot of um, trust of the uh, of in between the municipalities, a lot of collaboration. So we'll see where that goes. I'm not sure what governments are going to do to combat the sort of not in my backyard sentiment. But one of the encouraging things that I just reported is that uh, employers seem to be kind of noticing how this affects their bottom line and how this affects their ability to attract and keep um, employees. I mean, they don't want to see shortages at the drugstore because they can't afford to get to work and can't afford to work downtown anymore. And so these employers are, are now going to city and county and town meetings and saying, hey, this is the alternative perspective. We really need people to be able to live in this community because they serve your community. So let, let's let's talk about not in my backyard for a second or NIMBY, right? Uh, one of my favorite lines in this entire topic was written by Michael Hobbs of uh, Huffington Post and Highline. He wrote this like really great piece, really more about like the problems millennials face generally, but a big part of that is housing affordability. The way he framed it was if you're there's no such thing as a housing crisis for homeowners, right? So what that means is that if you already own property, like that's where this attitude not in my backyard comes from because your at, your attitude is I want my property to be worth as much as it can possibly be. And anything that makes houses cheaper runs the risk of making existing houses cheaper, worth less. And that is very, very unpalatable, very, very, as a very, very bitter pill for property owners to swallow, right? And think about it from their perspective, it's not a problem, right? If I already own a home, there's not a housing crisis, you know? So, so like that, that's kind of, I think one of the hardest like circles to square here is like, how do you get how do you get people on board with the idea of, you know, like... So it's quality of life. Right. Like, I think that the the argument against... I mean, it's an interesting theory. I don't know that that's entirely true. Say you own a four-bedroom home in Mount Pleasant, you're paying this mortgage, and your kids have just gone off to college. Now you want to downsize. Well, if you sell your four-bedroom house, you may not get enough to buy what you feel like is comparable and save the amount of money that you want. So I, I don't think it's a crisis by any means, but mm-hmm. I do think that the the price pressures on the housing market right now do affect homeowners in a certain way. But I get your point. So and what I think is the, the argument against that 
is quality of life. So if you don't have the nurses and the teachers that are living in your community or just the cashiers that are living in your community or the servers, I mean, it's going to take you a lot longer to fill that prescription. You're going to be waiting in line longer over time. You're going to have only two cash registers at the grocery store open at a time. And you can't your community suffers overall if you can't house a range of workers who have a range of incomes. You might think that this is going to bring down your property value, but what could really bring down your property value is if this isn't a livable community mm. anymore. That's a, that's a great point. Is one of the solutions potentially something like raising minimum wage in Charleston? I mean, could some of this be solved if wages were higher? I mean, I think there's definitely an argument for that. Right now, there's um, you know this this grassroots effort called the Poor People's Campaign, and that's one of their main things is they would really like to see minimum wages go up because the cost of living here is very high, and that everybody deserves to just live. So I think there is an argument out there for that. So Abigail, what do you see as the solutions? Um, what have other cities done that have worked? And what do you think could work especially well here? So I have one big crazy idea. <laughs> uh, the, the answer is there is no one solution. You have to do a ton of different things. And you know, if we had another hour, we could get into all of them. But there's one that I, I have kind of been uh, thinking through and talking about a lot. So I rent in West Ashley, and I live in a duplex, and our backyard is this, like, giant backyard. You know, I was out there the other day, and I was just thinking, wow, this is so much space that is just completely unused. And I looked at my neighbor, same situation. So the way that all of these older subdivisions, because I live in sort of like a mid-20th century uh, type home, and, and that's kind of what the area is in inner West Ashley. And we all have these huge yards. And so I was thinking if there was some incentive for homeowners or property owners to build accessory dwelling units in their backyards, almost like carriage houses that you have downtown, and then just put it in the covenant that you can't use them for short-term rentals in order to get some sort of grant from the local government to help you build that. And then it would just be in your covenant that that has to be used for workforce housing. This is something that was used uh, in California, and they call them granny flats there. I don't really hear that very often. But I think that is a great way that literally people can put the housing in their backyard and actually make a little <laughs> bit of, of income off of it. I mean, I think that would work really well in these older communities where that property is already spoken for, right? You can't do anything about – you can't infill – where somebody already owns that land. But if you put it on them to infill, then it you might start to see more and more. So that's one strategy of just that doesn't require new density, new zoning, new apartment projects. It's just an opportunity for individuals to help with the problem and make income at the same time. So yes, in my backyard. Right. You know, Yimby, yes. <laughs> but, I, but to that point, I think that just getting more people to realize the scope of the issue, what it really means for communities when you push back against housing and getting people to go to these government meetings and understanding zoning and saying, hey, you know, I do support this new apartment project. Hey, I do support, you know, even if it is luxury, housing stock is good. And eventually, you know, the experts all tell me that eventually just having more housing stock will bring prices down for, you know, the older units, you know, the, the rest of the market. So, I think just getting people's voices out there is extremely important. Seems like we'd have to create incentives at like an individual level, though. Yeah, for the um, accessory dwelling unit idea, you would definitely have to create incentives. But as far as just getting people to care more and go to public meetings, I mean, I just think 
if you're a person who is struggling with housing yourself, go and share your story. At, at personal anecdotes at Cover City Council, they mean a lot. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap. Thank you so yeah. much, Abigail. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My name is A underscore big underscore Gale. It's kind mm-hmm. of a joke because I'm not a very bit, you know, I'm not a very big Gale, but. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much, Abigail. I think that's a good place to wrap. Brooks, do you feel like you understand South Carolina any better? I think I understand that I will never be able to afford to live in Charleston properly. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) That we're all screwed. Yep, same. Same. Emery, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? I do feel like I better understand South Carolina. Actually, I think I might be more confused. I feel like there's just too many unsolvable problems. I just mostly feel sad. Yeah, Mm. it's a devastation. There's hope, guys. There's hope. We'll see. We'll see. Turn out. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.